Each January, when as a church family we review these habits of grace, I wonder if sometimes what's intended to encourage and motivate us can instead result in discouragement for some. Right? One by one, we're reminded of habits of grace and we realize we're not scoring 100% on any one of them. We hear of fellowship and we think, I'm so tired or I'm so busy, I don't even want to go to another fellowship. Or we hear of challenge to be in God's word to a greater degree, greater faithfulness. And we think, I'm on and off about my Bible reading. Or last year I didn't finish my Bible reading plan before January 1st. And prayer, that may be the most daunting of all. A pastor was quoted, said years ago, he wondered out loud about prayer. How can something I'm so bad at be God's will for my life? So you're probably not alone in your temptation to discouragement. We can be sure that anything having to do with the means of grace, the the avenues that God wants to get grace to us will be obstructed and opposed by the evil one. Certainly some of that opposition can come through simple discouragement, but it's not in God's nature to discourage us this morning with our shortcomings. James teaches that God doesn't scold us when we plead for wisdom that we lack. Different translations say he doesn't chide us or upbraid us. The idea is he doesn't become impatient. He's happy for us to ask and to struggle with getting past where we are to a, a place of greater growth. Jesus doesn't beat us down with our weakness in prayer. This morning as we deal with this final habit of grace, prayer, Jesus actually expresses his awareness that we do already pray some when he begins the Lord's Prayer with the words, when you pray, say this. He seems to have confidence that his disciples will act on his teaching as he provides a thorough and beautiful model of prayer for them. So just like this series on the habit of grace is intended to encourage growth, this morning the Lord's Prayer is intended as an encouraging model for us of the privilege we're invited to enjoy as believers. We just sang about the the glory of God being revealed through preaching and the treasure that we have in God's Word. So like one family member pointing out to other family members on a Christmas morning that there's still one gift remaining under the tree, Jesus points out to us that there's unexperienced joy and strength available to us through the encouragement of the Lord's Prayer. Scripture records the Lord's Prayer in two of the Gospel writers, in Matthew and also in Luke. The two accounts aren't exact matches, perhaps we think, because Jesus taught the Lord's Prayer repeatedly in his traveling itinerant ministry. And so, The remembrances of the recordings of God's model prayer are a little different and are remembered differently by the gospel writers. In the account of Matthew, the prayer is presented as a part of the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke, it's mentioned as a part of the regular flow of the day-by-day walk of Jesus with his disciples. And one preacher says that the reason we have God's prayer, the Lord's prayer, is simply because it comes from the routine of Jesus and the request of his disciples. We have the Lord's prayer because Jesus prayed routinely. Think of all the things that we don't know about Jesus' life. The things that God, for whatever sovereign purpose, he has not allowed us to know. 
What does it mean when Scripture says that the boy Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man? We don't know all of that. Sometimes those passages of Scripture are referred to as the silent years. And yet one thing that's plainly spelled out in Scripture for us is that numbers of times we have records of Jesus praying. The man who was truly God and truly man prayed. And observing him, the disciples were moved to ask for help. So we have the Lord's Prayer because the disciples asked for his help. This morning we'll begin by noting the spirit of prayer that Jesus encourages us to. Then we'll deal with, phrase by phrase, the content of this model prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Then we'll close with a few practical encouragements that I think the Lord has put in my mind to strengthen us on a practical level in our lives, our desire to grow in prayer. We learn the right spirit for our prayer by the emphasis that Christ himself gave through these two gospel writers' record of his model prayer. Luke's writing emphasizes the need for persistence, doesn't it? By relaying Christ's own story of one who is knocking at his neighbor's door late at night. He's had a friend arrive unannounced and he doesn't have bread to feed him. So he's knocking at his neighbor's door and at first the neighbor refuses to get up. He calls out, we've already gone to bed. Go away, basically. But the, the one who is the, the guest who has arrived persists in knocking until that, that one eventually opens the door. And Christ is careful to point out it's not because they were good friends that he opened the door. It's because of, KJV uses the word, because of his importunity. Beautiful word. The ESV translates the word as impudence, a stubbornness like a child that needs to be corrected. The NIV translates this phrase, because of your shameless audacity, your desperation and willingness to show it. And so he knocks and knocks and eventually his friend does open the door and and meets the need. Luke emphasizes persistence. But in Matthew's writing, there's an emphasis on humility for our spirit of prayer. Jesus warns those listening to him about practicing their righteousness openly before other people. The idea is that you're doing these things to be seen. So Christ notes that although righteous people do pray, and they do give, and they do fast. We ought to do those things with a a spirit or a mode of secrecy. When you give to the poor, he says, don't sound the trumpet to advertise what you're about to do. That's an image that resonates with me. Don't let everybody know that you're about to meet someone's need, materially or financially. Keep it as private as if your left hand didn't know what your right was doing. Of course, that's difficult because usually our hands work together. But the Lord's calling us to humility and a privacy, a secrecy. Jesus continues, when you pray, don't stand on the street corners so that you're seen. The Amplified Bible uses the phrase to describe this prayer like actors acting out a role in a play. The idea is that publicly, before others, you're happy to act in a way that privately those who know you best maybe don't see at home. And the Lord cautions us against that. Christ even mentions humility and fasting when he says, when you fast, don't let your face still be discolored by the ashes that you've used in your fasting. No, he says, wash your face so the ashes are gone and no one knows you are involved in fasting. 
Obviously, these cautions don't mean that we won't pray together corporately. So there's one more call in the spirit of prayer, and that's to a spirit of genuineness. I love the, the glorified, dignified poetry of that first hymn we, we sang together, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. I love the, the scripture that Steve quoted for us and the elevated language that was contained therein. We need that, but we also need a genuineness, a sincerity that represents who we are and what we really uh, are like in life. The Amplified Bible, again, paraphrases the wording here. Don't use meaningless repetitions. Don't pile up phrase upon phrase. John Stott calls this kind of prayer, all lips, no mind, no heart. The call is to be reverent in our prayers, but to be ourselves. And to use language that is familiar and sincere for you. We do sometimes praise God with the high language that he deserves. God is the one who sits enthroned on a throne and he sits among cherubim. But we should also thank him for his use of that kingly power in our lives. Thank him for the peace that you experienced this past meeting, this past week. Maybe in a difficult work meeting that you dreaded. Thank him not just for being the creator of the world, but thank him for the beautiful color of that tree in your neighborhood that each fall is so lovely. Thank him not just for provision, but thank him for your actual home, maybe for the joy of decorating that home. Thank him not just for the meal you're about to enjoy, but for the texture and the flavor of the food and for the benefit that you know it will give you physically. Pray with a genuineness that represents who you are. Pray persistently, Jesus taught us, but pray with humility and sincerity. He also teaches us, of course, the content of prayer as he expresses this prayer before his disciples. So let's read now from Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. Matthew 6, verse 9, Jesus said to his disciples, When you pray, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And then we'll, tr we'll skip past this verse as we treat each phrase and come back to it. Verse 14, For if you forgive others their trespasses... Your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And then verse 13, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And that's what we read in the ESV. Many will notice, especially those of us who are older, the, the omission of the beautiful doxology that maybe you know and love from the King James Version. It's drawn from David's prayer of dedication in the temple recorded in 1 Chronicles. And many manuscripts do include that here, but newer modern translations and our contemporary translators are not convinced that it should be placed here in Scripture, though it is biblical, though it's representative of the spirit of everything else prayed in this prayer. Many have noted that the Lord's Prayer is organized simply with an opening greeting and then two sets of petitions. One for God's glory and one for man's good. And so the opening address is our Father. 
These two words speak to us of relationship. You may have recited the Lord's Prayer together in a crowd somewhere before some event, maybe a concert. You didn't think much of it, but afterwards you wondered to yourself, I wonder if all those reciting those words from Scripture even really want to claim God as their Father. Of course, there's a sense in which every human being can call God Father, that we owe our existence to Him as the Creator. In the book of Acts, when Paul was described in Athens, he spoke of the God who made the world and everything in it. That He, God Himself, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So every human should acknowledge God as Father in that sense. And yet in the spiritual sense, the Gospel writer John argues that it's only believing sonship that gives us the right, the privilege to call God Father. The reference to God as Father, which occurs only about 15 times in the Old Testament, blossoms in its use with the coming of Jesus, the Son of God. In the New Testament, it's used almost 250 times. Again, the Gospel of John says, to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, to them God gave power or the right to become the sons of God, the children of God. Our Father. Our first words in the model prayer addressing the Creator, the, the pre-existent One, the Almighty One. They, those words ought to slow us down and consume our attention in humility and gratitude for the relationship we're invited to enjoy. Of course, some people may recall Memories of difficult circumstances with an earthly father who was severe with you. Maybe mistreated you terribly or was disloyal to your family or to your mother. And so you have difficulty directing prayers to any fatherly figure. Yet we're unwise to project these earthly experiences onto a heavenly father. Because they miss the mark in terms of creating a right picture of him. We have a Father who loves us perfectly. It's not because of how good or bad we are as sons or how good our fathers were, but because of the work of, the, of His Son in justifying us, because of Christ's work. Our relationship with God, our Father, is a gift maintained by His faithfulness. And so the, the writer of the short letters in First and Second and Third John exults that See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children. What a privilege. Projecting images of a weak father, earthly, is not wise. But I would suggest to you that neither is projecting our memories of a wonderful earthly father. Because that too falls short. I had a father who in my high school years made me feel, I, I, I think, like he was always available to me. I had purchased a ping pong table with money from a paper route. And we spent hours together laughing and playing. And I can still remember the image of my dad. He had a favorite chair in the family room. And he'd be relaxing there maybe with an issue of popular mechanics in his lap. And he might have dozed off with that magazine in his lap. But repeatedly, I would appear at the family room door and asked dad if he was interested in playing ping pong. And my dad would consistently, every time, rise, get up, maybe wake up, and come 
play with his high school son. Yet at some point, even my father's kindness toward me would be stretched too thin, wouldn't it? If I'd gone to his bedside at three o'clock in the morning and asked if he wanted to get up, he would have sent me back to bed and told me I was crazy. So our image of God, our Father, needs to be formed from Scripture, His Word, His own self-revelation. This past Wednesday night, we worked with a psalm that speaks of the God who never sleeps. And if we wake at three in the morning with angst in our hearts, we have a God who is always available to us in the perfect sense. He'll never tire of our requests. My help comes from the Lord, we reviewed Wednesday night, who made heaven and earth. He'll not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. You have to give God the chance to define himself, to reveal himself through his word. By his own testimony, Jesus is the only perfect reflection of God's image. And scripture teaches us that if we've seen Christ, we have seen the Father. A skeptic, if you're here this morning and you have thoughts that you're wrestling with about your own faith, I would gently tell you that a skeptic can't claim credibility for his or her doubts about God's existence or God's character if they've not read about him in Scripture. Given God the chance to describe himself there. Pastor two weeks ago quoted another pastor, Kent Hughes, in his helpful book, he said, you can't be influenced by that which you don't know. As we think about God, our Father, you can't be motivated to pray to a Father with whom you have little familiarity from God's Word. Our Father in heaven. These two words speak of reality in heaven. This reality is at the core of our Christian faith, not just a, a dreamy image that the whole world can share in, but a real place, a place of assurance and hope that there's a place that we will go after we die. I remember hearing a preacher say that heaven was sweeter and more vivid for those of us who already have loved ones there. It's a place of hope for those who've already experienced the pain or loss of their loved one's deaths. And so Jesus told his fearful and confused disciples, I am leaving you soon, but I will prepare a place where we'll be together again. John 14. Our Father in heaven, a place of reality. Then hallowed be your name. This phrase speaks of our responsibility. And truly, this is our greatest responsibility in life, to see that God is hallowed. Our English dictionary defines hallowed as something being made holy or consecrated. And that's fine, yet in the theological sense, we can't make God's name any more holy than it already is because God is perfect holy, holiness. He's the embodiness of holiness. So we're praying really that God would be reverenced. Or as one commentator writes, we're not praying that God would become holy, but that he may be treated as holy. David in the 8th Psalm exclaims, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How excellent, how unique, how deserving of reverence is God's name. Paul writes to his friends in Philippi, God has highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at that name every knee should bow. 
And so as we pray that God's name would be hallowed, we're expressing our own willingness to bow in submission to him. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come speaks of readiness. A readiness for his coming. A readiness to be his loyal subject. This phrase expresses a desire for God as king to rule in my life. It expresses a realization that his return and his rule is so much better than anything that we can experience here on earth. It's better than what I would selfishly choose for myself. There's nothing in our earthly life that we surprise so much that we would want to delay his coming so we could experience it. Not marriage, not next summer's wonderful vacation plans, nothing. Thy kingdom come. It's like that older saint that we know who's so eager to be released from this, this earth, this life, and be with God in heaven. And we, we sang, we've been given this, the heritage of those who fear God. We ought to imitate those older saints who are eager to be with the Lord. One pastor writes, a simple definition of this phrase is to think of the kingdom of God as his reign and rule. J.I. Packer reminds us that to pray thy kingdom come is searching and demanding. For one must be ready to add and start with me. Make me your fully obedient subject. Your kingdom come, readiness. Then your will be done speaks of resignation. This means being willing to resign your will to the will of another. It's here in this phrase that we hear overtones of the gospel, isn't it? Because we know that even Jesus in his Passion Week struggled with what he knew was the will of God his Father. But being truly God and truly man, he verbalized out loud, if there is any other way, could it be possible that this bitter cup that I'm supposed to drink could pass from me? And yet in the end, he, he expressed a willingness for not his own will to take place, but that he would yield his will to the will of his Father. It's an awareness that I have no rights or self-protection. It's a desire for him to control me and to use me. It expresses my willingness to accept unpleasant and difficult circumstances in my own life or even in the life of one I love. We're expressing through prayer that we want God's will to come to pass. Your will be done. Resignation. Not bitter or passive or forced or resentful, but a sweet acknowledgement that God's will will be better. The phrase, on earth as it is in heaven, speaks of the righteousness that God expects. It's a righteousness that's the same whether it's here on earth or in heaven. Part of the idea is that we want to obey God with the same readiness and eagerness and speed that angels do God's bidding in heaven. There's no hesitancy to obey when we're prompted to give or to go or to act or say on God's behalf. No, that thy will would be done on earth as it is in heaven in the same way, perhaps with the same speed and readiness. It's obedience that carries out God's will as it's being fulfilled in heaven now with immediacy, spontaneity, and no opposition from evil. And then give us this day our daily bread. It speaks of reliance, reliance. Pastor Kevin DeYoung writes, certainly the first and most obvious meaning 
of daily bread is physical bread, which includes more than just bread, but our food in general. Of course, we remember the image of the Israelites and God's provision for them and how they would gather manna, but only enough for one day, lest it spoil overnight. It is God's way to provide this day daily bread, one short period at a time, not all at once. The songwriter, I think, described this concept this way when he wrote, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. We don't yet have grace, nor do we need grace for the challenges that are coming to us in April. It's still January. And God's way is daily bread, daily provision. His way is not to provide through the power of all lottery mindset. We sometimes want to dream that if only we could be so lucky, we'd be set financially for life. And what peace that would bring, we think. No, the the, the lottery mindset doesn't harmonize very well with the daily bread mindset, does it? We're set for life as we rest under the umbrella of God's manna-like provision. Give us this day our daily bread. Daily bread may include more than just our material needs. It may be physical strength, maybe wisdom for decisions or our finances or right attitudes. Lord, grant to me what I need to live for you this day. Daily bread can certainly refer to Christ himself. The day after he fed 5,000, some in the crowd followed him to Capernaum. And Jesus says to them, you're intrigued because you ate your fill of the bread that I multiplied for you. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And so we need Christ as our portion, our daily bread. Again, one writes, this expression in the Lord's prayer isn't a mindless ritual. It's a confession that normal life can blow up at any time. That jobs and health and financial assets and relationships and national stability Even global peace can be upended very quickly. Give us this day our daily bread. And then, forgive us our debts. This phrase speaks of restoration. Traditionally, Bible scholars don't believe this reference to asking forgiveness was at the highest level of forgiveness of sins, such as in salvation, but had to do with the, quote, sins of a daily infirmity. The sins that we commit day after day, even though we are saved. And just as we ask for daily bread, we should ask for daily forgiveness. I must acknowledge that I've sinned if I want to be forgiven, because asking is the way to be exposed to God's grace. One pastor writes that to miss a day of praying this way is to spend a day where I'm tempted to think I'm okay with God because of my personal performance. That's never been the case, and it never will be. Another likens gaining forgiveness to picking up a ticket at the will call window. You have a friend who has a, a concert ticket or a ticket to a play, and they want to give it to you for, their, for your use. So they leave it for you at the auditorium at the will call window, and there it sits, awaiting you. It's effective, it's alive, unexpired. 
but it doesn't work unless you go by and pick it up and avail yourself of it. And that, that's the spirit of forgiveness. So too we must make a confession of sin, a daily request that we initiate to make it effectual. Forgive us our debts. And then moving over one verse, Jesus says to pray this way, Forgive us as we have also forgiven our debtors. For as you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Understanding the forgiveness contained in the gospel ought to overwhelm us with a conviction that nothing done to us or said against us is too great to forgive another. We've been spared the wrath of God being poured out against us. So why wouldn't we extend that same grace to another human being? When we pray, forgive us our debts, we're saying in essence, in the same manner that we've forgiven others, forgive us. So what are we going to do when someone has offended us deeply and we don't feel ready to forgive? Yet we want God's forgiveness extended to us. Luke's record of this prayer, his words are actually a bit startling to me. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Really? We forgive everyone? Is that our testimony? Or, or do we tend, do you tend like me, to sometimes hang on to offenses? Long, long talked out. Supposedly long forgiven, and yet you hang on to them in your hearts and you grant maybe a, a partial forgiveness to that one, hoping that, that they will not quite feel released from the offense they caused you. Do you want good relationships with other people? You've got to be willing to forgive. I, I remember frequently, have over the years, and still do the wisdom of my mother-in-law, who at, the, you know, there's sort of an open mic time at, at rehearsal dinners before a wedding, and, and my mother stood, my mother-in-law stood up to say something. And instead of offering platitudes about what a promising young couple we were, she, she offered this simple reminder that if we wanted to have an enduring and healthy marriage, we needed to be ready to ask for and offer forgiveness. Certainly there's a sense in which we can't forgive the one who sinned against us before they ask for forgiveness, But what is our posture toward the one that, that needs forgiveness? A Christ-like spirit, Christ's own example, stands ready to forgive. Holding out that forgiveness for acceptance even before it's requested and claimed. We see this posture in Christ on the cross. Interceding with his Father for those who have inflicted his life-threatening wounds even before they've asked for forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They, they don't know what they're doing. And so are our hearts so full of gratitude for the mercy God has shown us that we are ready, we're all ready in a posture of readiness to cancel the debt that someone else owes us. Forgive us as we forgive others. And then the last phrase, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This speaks of a realization of our own weakness. This last phrase is not suggesting that God could or would entice us with evil because we know it's not in his character to do so. 
James states plainly that God can't be tempted with evil and he will never tempt his own with evil. The phrase is asking that God would strengthen us to avoid places or circumstances that would exploit our weakness, where the allure of sin is greater than that we can bear. Once more, Pastor Kevin DeYoung writes, if we're to pray for daily provision and daily pardon, then we must also pray for daily protection. How many times do we go without each, about each day thinking that there's no battle, blissfully ignorant, sometimes willfully ignorant of the danger that we will face. So lead us not into temptation. As we close, could I just offer a couple of suggestions that I think the Lord gave me to try and renew my efforts at prayer this year to add some minutes to what I do. I'd say number one, it's easy to choose to pray initially. It's easy to make the choice, but it's difficult to sustain that choice. So start with a small goal and pray for endurance in that goal. Remember that our prayer life is more a marathon than a sprint. Number two, you'll be helped if you reach out to another church member to work on prayer together. Although we can use the Lord's Prayer, this beautiful model, to pray individually, we can't forget that he did verbalize this model with a lot of plural pronouns. Our Father, forgive us, lead us. So perhaps you and a friend in the church could wrestle together with prayer this coming year. Number three, would you consider engaging technology to your advantage? A few years back, Pastor Jonathan showed me the app Prayer Mate, where one can organize different prayer burdens onto digital cards right there on your phone. One card for my family, another for my life group, another for students I want to pray for, and so on. And you can even set this app so it will give you a little a, a reminder, an alarm on your phone, a reminder to pray at the same time each day. Just this past week, it, the alarm went off and reminded me to pray for that day's cards. So consider technology. And then finally, remember that the urgency of praying more effectively is not just for your sake. It's for both your sake and for others that love you, and that you love. It's a surety that your family and your loved ones, your close circle of friends, desperately need your increased prayers in the coming year. And maybe the images of them in your mind could encourage you and motivate you to get to your own personal prayer closet. Again, as we said earlier, Jesus points us to the unexperienced joy and strength through the encouragement of the Lord's Prayer. May the Lord help us to respond with a heart that treasures prayer and disciplines our choices to engage together in it. Let's close together in prayer. Lord, we're grateful that you've invited us to this position as your son and to share in this privilege, Lord. And we pray that you, through your Holy Spirit, you would use and reuse your word as we recall it. Lord, please strengthen us in our efforts as we desire to pray more, more often, more minutes, more deeply, more passionately, Lord. And we need your help. So we give ourselves to this and we ask for your strengthening in it. In Jesus' name, amen.
respond to the message today appropriately by singing.